Thank you very much, Sarah and Will. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I am Courtney Reagan, and tonight for Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Nadine Turman, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, Tesla tanks. The stock falling more than 4% today as U.S. highway officials launch a formal investigation into its autopilot system. We'll break down the full fallout straight ahead. Plus, we're tracking the after-hours action in shares of Tencent Music. The stock on the move on the back of results will take you inside that quarter. And later, break out your credit card. We are gearing up for a big week of retail earnings. Just ahead, we'll dive into the key names that need to be on your shopping list. But we start with another record day on Wall Street. The S&P 500 and Dow closing at all-time highs for the fifth straight day. The S&P now officially double its pandemic lows. The moves coming as Fed officials grow increasingly supportive of starting to wind down the central bank bond purchase program. Let's get the latest with Steve Leisman, who just spoke with Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren. Steve, very fresh comments. What did Mr. Rosengren have to say? Uh, He basically agreed with the general idea about the Federal Reserve's Mark Committee looking to really coalescing around a plan to announce it will taper its asset purchases in September and begin reducing them a month or so after Rosengren was a little more comfortable with waiting a little bit longer to start. So here's a new potential taper timeline uh, from our reporting, Courtney. A taper announcement happening in September. Last month, by the way, market consensus had been centered around November or December. The taper beginning in October or November, that depends on how much advance notice the Fed feels it needs to give markets. And then a taper that lasts eight to 10 months, depending upon how aggressive the Fed wants to be in bringing down those asset purchases. Remember, to still be buying even while it's reducing the amount it buys. And as Courtney said, a few minutes ago on Closing Bell, we did talk to Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren. Here are some of the direct headlines. He said with another strong job support, he would support the September taper announcement and he would want to finish the taper mid-year 2022. So that's about an eight to 10 month uh, time frame there. The criteria for raising rates, he said, is different for a taper, but he did say that if wages continue to rise faster than expected, that might be a reason for raising rates. Now, just to be clear, no decision been made yet by the Federal Market Committee. Committee could delay the announcement until November. If that August jobs report is weak, the Delta variant sparks a new round of economic lockdowns or uh, inflation readings ease off. Fed Chair Jay Powell, he's yet to speak since that July jobs report came in hotter than the Fed expected and producer prices came in at double the consensus. So the focus now turns to Jay Powell in Jackson Hole, where he could set the table for that September announcement. Courtney? Very interesting timing, of course, Steve, for that big Jackson Hole conference. Um, you know, I just have to ask you, if Rosengren says taper could start in September if there's another strong jobs report, can you remind us where the economists are right now with what they believe is going to happen when the extended unemployment benefits roll off for more Americans as, as it pertains to oh. how it will be related in the jobs report? Okay, but first, what I'm, what I'm going to do when yeah. I'm answering this question is I'm going to look up, which I have not looked up yet, <laughs> okay. the consensus for that August jobs report. For that, sorry, yeah, the, for the uh, August jobs report. It's a little early days yet, so we may okay. not have it. But right now, the expectation is that sometime in September, these um, uh, extended unemployment benefits will roll off. And uh, the result of that is that people who have, some people who have been, say, sitting on the sidelines waiting to get a job, 
could come back into the workforce as a result of that, and that could ease some of the labor shortage we've had out there. The result of that would be to ease some of the wage pressure in the economy and thereby easing some of the inflationary pressure. That's the kind of stages that people expect, forecasters expect the economy to go through as part of the idea that the inflation surge we have has been te- will be temporary. Steve, it's Karen. Let me ask you something. It seems like there's been sort of a concerted effort among members of the Fed to sort of get this message out there, get the market ready. The temper, the, the you know, temporary tapering rather is coming. Do you think the market is accepting it? I mean, because it hasn't been that huge of a reaction, certainly versus the last time we saw this. Or are they are they questioning whether, you know, maybe the Delta variant causes, you know, less, more pressure, economic pressure? What do you make of it? I think there's a bunch of explanations. I think that's a really good question. And I'm actually working on a story about why this has been a taper tranquility so far. I'm not sure if that's the right word, uh, but but there's a couple answers out there, Karen. Uh, let me start with the idea that the uh, that that uh, Fed chair Jay Powell has been extremely focused on making sure there wouldn't be a tantrum. And he has studied what happened in 2013 and he believes the answer has been advance notice. I think he wants to lull you to sleep by this. Remember, we started talking about a taper, I don't know, in the spring. By June, we had a pretty detailed report about the Fed's plan to roll this out. Uh, And then they began rolling it out. So they talked about it at the June meeting. They talked about the July meeting. They're probably going to talk about it in Jackson Hole. September, they'll do it. And let's not forget this, Karen. We're talking about a taper. What does that mean? A reduction in the amount of purchases. So what I calculated today, Karen, if you, and you can double check me on the math, if you go take $120 billion down by $15 billion a month over eight months, you are still going to add sorry, $660 billion to the balance sheet while you're tapering. So that's sort of a non-event, I think, for markets that believe that we're going to have pretty strong growth, and they probably bought into this idea of inflation being temporary. Hey, Steve, it's Tim. How about the concept of, look, the Fed really needs to wait to see September data because the world's, at least our our kids back in school, country seems to be really coming back on, people coming back from wherever. Um, Does that change the timeline for you? Um, Because ultimately, I think September data means, you know, out in October means they can't do anything till November. You know, that's my logic. You know, um All my reporting is conditional upon the August uh, uh, report being strong. But I think, Tim, where we are right now is that the August jobs report has to prove why the Fed should not announce the taper. And that's a bit of a change, right? Um, I think, you know, what as a result of that, you know, you'd have to have a really strong report. But the other if it was the other way. But I think the way we are now is that that report comes in five, six hundred thousand I think that's good enough. If it comes in seven or eight hundred thousand, definitely good enough. Down in the two or three hundred thousand range, maybe they wait a little bit. Steve, thank you very much for being here with us and for answering all of our questions that, of course, don't have any real concrete answers as we're all just waiting to see what happens. Have a great yeah, night. And, and Court, Courtney, just yeah. for, the, for the record, Courtney, I don't have a non-farm payroll estimate yet from Reuters. It's a little okay. early yet. So I really threw you so a, tri- a trick question, not, and I'm sorry it's about not that. Something, it's not something I... <laughs> Not something I didn't know. It's something I didn't had. I didn't have the answer to. So there you go. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thanks, Steve. Have a great night. All right. Let's trade on this a little. Mr. Adami, we have not heard from you yet. What do you make of all of this and the Fed's timeline right now and what Mr. Rosengren had to say on the closing bell with Steve? 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's starting to line up with a lot of voices out there, the September-October notion. And I think Karen's question was spot on. You know, why is not the market reacting to this? And I think Steve's answer was also spot on. The fact that, you know, although maybe we're talking about a $15 billion a month thereabouts, uh, we're still talking about a Fed that's going to continue to add to their balance sheet. You know, one thing that concerned me, and it's a question for another time, is the bond volatility we're seeing. I talk about it a lot. I'm becoming a bit of a broken record, but the moves in 10-year yields are extraordinary, in my opinion, given it should be the most liquid asset on the planet. You know, we, you've seen it. I don't need to go back and tell you some of the moves we've seen over the last few months, but they're remarkable. And maybe the market's just become accustomed to it, but my, you know, I would submit that bond volatility is typically the precursor of equity volatility, and that's what my concern would be. Nadine, what's your thoughts here? Well, we looked at it a little bit differently, and that is, you know, well, yields just trade in a range. And so we were long fixed income and some treasuries last week, and then you get yields down, so the bonds are up. And then today is the day that you trim them. Uh, if you're feeling a little bit more lucky, maybe go short the TLT. Um, but we're just seeing it trade in a range. So that's what we've been doing for client portfolios. Um, and what we're think looking at in terms of the data for GDP is that it's decelerating around the world. So the growth is decelerating. So we actually think that the Fed's going to have to walk a fine line between some of the positive numbers, so labor coming back in the market, inflation being high, and then also looking out to say, okay, if things are going to decelerate, you know, how do we walk this fine line? So, Tim, if the market is sort of unreactive right now to some of these taper headlines, does that mean that the rates are going to matter more? Do they matter less as we're battling inflation? Are we all just finally ready to get out of this period of unprecedented uh, look, rates? Yeah, I hear you. Of course, I don't think the markets are even close to ready. To, okay. to I mean, so if you think about it from the market's perspective, um, I, I think the sense of when the Fed and, and I, I don't want to speak for other folks. The sense that the Fed is going to raise rates anytime soon is not in the market, nor should it be, um, because the Fed has been very clear on telegraphing this. Uh, when central banks are, are truly pulling in liquidity, and when the Fed is the beginning of global central banks pulling in liquidity, I say get out of the way. And, and what we've just said now, and what Steve underscored, is that the Fed's balance sheet will actually be growing as they are tapering. Um, I, I think that the market also tends to uh, get ahead of the Fed. So if the Fed is actually beginning to pull in at least some of its accommodation, things like the 10-year, to me, begin to price in maybe a little less liquidity, maybe a little less growth. And what's concerning to me as an investor is, is that things like uh, the inflation, whether it's PPI, CPI, whether it's the inflation components of, of that University of Michigan confidence number, um, which, which was not that great um, relative to where you see all this other, like, we should see rates higher. And ultimately, I think this we are getting a little bit of a message from the market. And I think the minute the Fed begins to assert themselves, I think rates are long and are going to move lower um, because I think the sense is they're going to think one step ahead of what's actually happening, even though, yes, intuitively, rates should be moving higher. But I think we got a chance to see this three months ago um, when the Fed began to, to start to guide this conversation. Right, right. And, and Karen, sort of to your question to Steve in the same vein, why don't you think the markets are reacting more to some of these taper headlines because they've been so communicative to the market? I think that's part of it. I mean, the market has been concerned about inflation yep. for a long time now, and there has been this big debate whether it's transitory or not, and it seemed transitory somewhat, but then you get these big employment numbers. So that's an argument for the other side. I don't know. It might just be that the overall, the absolute number of, the absolute interest rates are so low that does it really matter if they move a little? I'm not quite sure. 
I'm not, I really don't know. Karen, I love, I mean, you are so smart, and I love that you say that. Because, Nadine, I always say, like, rates are so low. If they raise them 50 basis points, does it really matter that much? Like, am I, am I not understanding this well enough? Well, I think that the points about being two steps ahead by Tim was really important here. And that is, if you look historically, when there's tapering post-QE, markets actually tend to go up. And so that might be a little bit counterintuitive, but people are playing a few steps ahead. Um, and so when we look at the market today, it actually makes sense to us. Um, but what we think about the rates is that it'll probably be range bound for a while. So again, we think of just trading in a range. We don't think it's jumping of like the 10 year above two, it's not going below one, but you have this sweet spot range it's trading in. And then you can't therefore go all in one way or a different way at any one time, but you can trade around it. I'm gonna give you the final word, Guy, before we wrap up this conversation. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not an economist. I say it all the time. I'm not smart enough, <laughs> nor am I humorless enough to be one. But what I will say is, you know, I do think bond volatility is a thing. And to your point about, you know, 50, I mean, I know this is just math, but listen, 50 basis points when 10-year yields are 10% are one thing when they're, you know, 1.3% is entirely different. So I think we all understand that. I'll just say, finally, Fed has done a masterful job, whether I like it or not. I mean, they've done a masterful job in communication vis-a-vis -vis the fact that the volatility, the VIX is 16 and a half, 17, and the market continues to make all-time highs. Um, under that mandate, they've done an incredible job. All right, got it. Well, coming up, we're going to go shopping for opportunity. A ton of big retail names report results this week. We're digging in with a good old-fashioned game of shop it or drop it. But first, we're all over some after-hours action in shares of Tencent Music. That stock on the move after reporting results you can see higher by more than 3.5%. Those details are up next when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Tencent Music. Shares moving higher on the back of results. Let's get to Christina Partzinevelos with the details of that report. Hi, Christina. Hi. Well, think of it like the Spotify of China. Tencent Music Entertainment posted a mixed quarter, a slight miss on revenue with gross margins shrinking despite gross profit increasing. So why? The company cited increased investments and increased revenue sharing fees. Also, Tencent Music in this latest quarter did continue to show that it's growing market share with online music payers reaching 66.2 million for the second quarter. That's an almost 41% increase year over year. And the company has tried to attract more users recently by focusing on long-form audio and expanding its library through licensing deals with Universal Music Group and Sony Music. Year to date, though, the stock has trended down, down 52%. And Tencent Music does plan to also list in Hong Kong as a hedge against a possible forced delisting here in the United States. A Nikkei Asia reporting that Tencent Music is leaning towards putting off the sale until next year when market and, of course, regulatory hurdles that we've been talking about uh, have eased. And also, keep in mind, in July, the SEC said Chinese firms listed on U.S. stock exchange must disclose the risks of the Chinese government possibly interfering in their business, a.k.a. an, an audit. And Unfortunately, for a lot of these companies, Beijing forbids such reviews on national security grounds, which is why many Chinese firms like Tencent Music are turning to Hong Kong for secondary listings. But the share price like you listed is trending slightly higher after these results. Back to you. 
Thank you very much, Christina. Tim, I want to start with you. You're a music guy, one of the resident music Thank gurus you. on the show. Uh, yes, Not I the am. only one. Yes, but, I am. But one of them. <laughs> um, what do you make of this report, Tencent Music, and just the general risk around investing in a company, as Christina pointed out, with all of these regulatory risks from the yeah, Chinese look, government? The, the Spotify of China, unfortunately, is not about you know an exclusive you know strategy on content that they had in streaming. And by the way, they lost an antitrust case, and there are reasons around why some of the bottom-up stuff around the company is is not great. But the story here is is all on regulatory side, mm-hmm. and and the attack on Tencent, and, and and ultimately the sense of where their streaming business, which also really had a bit of a monopoly in China, is is under some pressure. I think they have some transition of their product base into more social entertainment. I think that's exciting. I think there's a cost to it. But remember, again, this was a stock that was a fifty billion dollar market cap in late March. Uh, it's now about a sixteen billion dollar company. Uh, so it's staggering what has happened again in the internet space. And look at the, the, the trading today in, in Tencent overall and in Alibaba. Again, um, this is uh, death by a thousand knife cuts. And I don't think the regulatory environment changes. If you read the China, the China news over, over the weekend, um, there was essentially in the state newspapers more commentary about their need to go after some of the, the streaming place. So mm-hmm. it's not good. Guy, what do you make of uh, Tencent here? Would you just rather go into a Pandora or a Spotify? Or can you not even compare them? Because, as Tim said, this is all about regulatory risk and not really about the fundamentals of the business. No, Tim hit the nail on the head. And you mentioned he was one part of this music uh, guru. I like to think I'm the other part. And this, to me, I'll give you a Rolling Stones song. And this is sort of under my thumb. And under the thumb of the Chinese government, all these companies find themselves in We've talked about it for a while. I will tell you, I think Tim and Karen would probably agree with this, and I've been interested to hear what Nadine says, but 176-ish was a level that uh, Alibaba closed at in the lows of March 2020, and we are precariously close to that. I think the risk-reward for Alibaba in, is the best it's been probably in eight or nine months. Hmm. Nadine, you got called out there by Guy, so I want to get your comment here on Tencent. Probably because we were saying the short China last week. Um, for Tencent Music, you know, our, our trading range was about nine spot, 10 to 11. So today it actually hit nine. So it was below the trading range. It means it's a buy. It also had roughly 22% upside. People are paying up for a lot for protection. But Tim's point are valid. So as a trade, it was oversold today and you could buy it and make some money. But in terms of the intermediate term, there's some problems here. You know, Guy and Tim were talking a little bit about it. And it's not just the regulatory aspect, but the fact that they had to pull the $5 billion offering in Hong Kong. And when you indefinitely pull it, what it means is you're foreseeing a lot more issues down the road such that you can't plan ahead. And as a shareholder, this is nothing more than a trade. Then if the management team can't plan for it, I think as an investor, you can't. That said, you know, we were short China last week. We had covered that um, given the last few days of trading with China being down. Now China's pretty much oversold. So, you know, if you are looking for trades, obviously there are undervalued assets like Baba and others. Um, but you have to be willing to make this more of a trade or a long-term hold. But you can't think you're going to sit there and not look at the stock because it's going to be a volatile ride. That's very interesting. You either go short-term or you go all in. And as we've been talking, shares were higher by 3.5%, and now they're up, but under 2%. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Just when you thought earnings season was over, some big retailers are ready to report. So should you shop or drop these names? Plus... 
Tesla shares, headed in reverse. The EV maker under pressure as regulators crack down. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're gearing up for a big week of retail earnings with big names like Walmart, Target, Lowe's, and Macy's all reporting this week. There are others, too. And the basic rules of economics are really going to be the focus. Consumers are spending, but inventory is tight, and the Delta variant throws everything into question. Demand is hot, but supply is not. There's a kink in every link of the supply chain. So what's the setup? Going into these retail reports, Karen, I'm going to start with you because I know you hold a number of these I do. big names. I do. I what? think the first five of them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yes. So I guess so. tomorrow we're going to get Walmart and Home Depot. What should we be watching from those reports first and the action that you would be taking based on it? Well, I think they're all going to have good numbers. Okay. But I don't know that that's necessarily the story for two reasons. One, expectations are very high. And we've seen what happens when super high expectations are met by super high earnings. Yeah. And that's not good enough, actually. Yeah. <laughs> the other part of it is, what are they seeing now, right? And this is, things are changing sort of quickly. So I want to see the Delta variant. How much of an impact is that having? We're in the middle-ish, maybe back to school so for a name like Target and Walmart, what are they seeing for back to school? That'll be really important. That's what I'm going to listen to. Um, for Home Depot and Lowe's, it's more of the, you know, has the enormous trend still, does it still have legs? I believe that it does. So I'm long both Home Depot and Lowe's. I want to hear what they're seeing out in, you know, not just uh, home improvement and new sales. They typically have a good season now because it's summer and people are doing outdoor projects. But I want to see what they're saying about what they're seeing now. It's sort of what have you done for me lately? Yeah, I think they're all going to have good numbers, though. OK, OK. Nadine, what do you make of some of these names? Pick your poison. Which name you want to talk about here? <laughs> well, uh, we can talk about Macy's. Um, okay. You know, it's been a, a business that people haven't liked that much. Um, but I think as Karen is saying, part of it is just these businesses are doing better. Um, they're in a better position than a few years ago. You've got um, transition to in-person shopping versus online. We saw that with the Amazon report, right? It was a little bit slower than expected. Um, and also kids need clothes to go back to school. They didn't buy them last year. Adults need clothes. They maybe got a little bit bigger before going back into the workforce. So I think you're going to see a better print. But with Macy's, I think of it this way is you've got to, again, thread that needle as they might have a good print you can hold into it but after a few months the reality sets in and comps start setting in and then you have to worry about debt levels and other problems and so these again are not i'd say buy and holds but i think you can trade around them this earnings season yeah, Macy's shares up huge year to date, but obviously coming off, you know, a lower base of about 69%. And I just want to uh, point out to some of your points there where kids need clothes, right? They grow out of them and, and you got to buy them sort of no matter what the situation is. But the MasterCard spending numbers for July were really good for apparel up 80% and department stores specifically up 45%. Now, this is July 2021 compared to July 2020, where obviously we are still dealing pretty hefty in the pandemic, but that's online and in-store combined. So, perhaps, as Karen said, we'll see some strong reports, but maybe it won't be good enough. So now we're going to stick with being stock specific. Easy for me to say. We're going to dig into a few other names that you might want to bet on heading into this week. So we want to play our game. We're going to play Shop It or Drop It. Gentlemen, are you in? Because we started with the ladies. Let's start with Target. Up more than 27% just since last reporting. So Tim, are you shopping it 
are dropping it. Look, Target's doing everything right. Um, the, the frequency of their store visits by their customers, the same-day services, the adoption here has been unbelievable. Um, t- my biggest issue with, with, with Target is really, you know, on a relative basis, not only to Walmart, but to some of its peers, it's just been, uh, it's, it's been a juggernaut. It's up you know, almost 50% year-to-date. I think there's better places to go, and for that reason, I'm out. Ooh, you're out. Karen, what are you thinking on I'm Target? in. I'm in. I'm long Target. Yeah, but uh, I, I, I'm dropping it. I, okay. I went Shark Tank, and I, I, who am I kidding? I dropped it. Not, I, just, okay. I had to play the game right. I got to pick the right show. Okay, Mr. Wonderful. Um, I'm long. Okay. I like it. I, you know, it, had, it has had a huge run. That is my least favorite thing about it. They did everything right during the pandemic. They're doing nicely coming out of it. That mix is better for them. They're doing more apparel. There's a better market for them. Yep. Uh, so it's not a crazy expensive either. The only thing to not like about it is how far it's come. But that's not enough reason for me to sell it, take a big game, try to figure out when do I get back in? Can I ever get back in? I don't know. So I'm long going into earnings. Okay, got it. Next up, Home Depot, up nearly 5% since last reporting. Nadine, this one, are you shopping it or dropping it? Is the home improvement trend over? Are we still in it? Yeah, I guess versus Karen, for me, I think it's such a great company. And obviously, they've done really well through the pandemic and then beyond and servicing their pro customers as well. But I just think expectations are high. So I'm dropping it here. It's not something I'd short, but it's just not something that gets me too excited. My range is about 327 to 338. So it's an even plus minus 2%. So for me, that's not quite exciting. But I am going to be looking at lumber prices. I'm going to be seeing, okay, our revenues um, actually going to be up because lumber prices are down. Um, our, but our margins going to get worse. What's happening here? Um, as well as the supply chain or their issues. So I think it's going to be easier to pick things apart and continue to get excited about what they're putting up. It does seem when Home Depot reports it, it's a little hard to move the needle for them, good or bad. It's such a big company that operates so well, you don't usually see big pops on this name after earnings. But, Guy, what do you make in general here of Home Depot? Would you shop it or are you dropping it? I'll play the game correctly, Tim, and I'll say (laughs) shop it. And listen, I know what Nadine is saying. I mean, clearly you can make a case against Home Depot on valuation, but I would shop it because... Saw that huge move into May. Stock traded up to 345. The subsequent sell-off to me flushed enough people out where I think we're going to ratchet through those prior all-time highs. Again, valuation of concern, but don't be surprised if they announce uh, additional share buyback. I think they announced a 20 billion share buyback program in May. My sense is they're going to add to that. Um, pristine balance sheet comps are going to be great. Valuation of concern, but it's been a concern now for the last five years. I think you shop Home Depot. All right. We'll see what happens with Walmart and Home Depot tomorrow. Of course, they are uh, Dow components. We'll see if that moves the broader market. But next up, Macy's down about 1% since last reporting, so relatively flat. We heard where Nadine stands on this one. Karen, are you shopping it or dropping it? I'm dropping it. I'm not shorting it. I mean, Macy's is very cheap. That's what I was going for it. Macy's should be very cheap. Okay. You can't sort of grow your way into, which I mean, you can't shrink your way, rather, right. into being a great company, or it's very hard to do. They're doing a great job given what they have, okay. right? So doing everything they can. All that being said, though, they did have a lot of debt they had to take on. It's not crazy expensive, but it's, uh, I, I mean, it could pop, but I don't want to be in it. I'd rather drop. Okay. 
got it. Tim? Well, I think there's a lot of short interest in the stock. So I think Karen's probably smart to avoid the short side. There's almost 14% short interest. There was close to 30 um, when the stock was at 10 bucks. So you've taken a lot of that off. I think Jeff Jeanette has done one of the great CEO turnarounds, um, certainly in retail, almost anywhere. And when you think about the percentage of their sales of each new dollar that's going to be through digital sales at Macy's, I think last quarter was north of 48%. That's what they've been trying to do in addition to managing inventory and, and creating a little bit more of experience because that's why I go to Macy's. So I'm a buyer. I'm shopping it. So just to play the game right. Um, and I do think that Macy's, while it's had a great run, if you look at that chart, it's consolidated very nicely around this $18 to $19 level. And I think it's ready to make another move. All right. Got it. Next up, Foot Locker shares down more than 6% since last reporting. Guy, what do you think? Sneakerhead, are you shopping it or dropping it? Hmm. Well, I'm not a sneakerhead, but I will shop this one. Deutsche Bank just added it to something they call a catalyst call, which I don't really know exactly what that means, but good for them. I think they have a $72 price target. Again, people will sort of knock it a bit on valuation, the fact that there are a lot of direct consumer stuff. But I think the stock has sold off enough where you're going to get a bounce post earnings, I think, on August 20th. So I shop it. Okay, Nadine, how about you for Foot Locker? Shopping it, dropping it. I think for the quarter, you're probably going to be okay, but I would drop it otherwise. For me, when you have such a large component of your business tied to one group, in this case, it's Nike. I look at the valuation of Foot Locker. They're going to have to put in CapEx to please Nike, SG&A to please Nike. I mean, it's not the kind of position you want to be in. So I'd rather just own Nike. So I'd buy it. If I can shop it, I'll shop Nike, and I'm going to drop a Foot Locker. Yeah, that is kind of the concern I think many of these retailers have that aggregate the brands when the brands start growing their direct-to-consumer business. But, Karen, I want to give you a word on Foot Locker. What would you do here? I kind of agree with everything Nadine just said. I think the <laughs> Nike thing, oh, that's always been the case. That has been the knock on Foot Locker. And then Foot Locker has managed to you know, trade nicely at times through it. But we're starting to really see Nike accelerate that direct to customer. It used to be a small part of their business. Nike during the pandemic has just really turned it up a notch or two. Foot Locker's trying their best. They had took a position in GOAT. I was going to say, yeah. Which is good for them. They're trying. Yeah. They're trying. They're doing everything they can. But I think it's a challenge business. Fair enough. Well, that was a fun game of shop it or awesome. drop it, right? Rock we all played it. well, even you, Tim. Uh, even yeah, we got, well, we got confused about the rules in the game we were playing. Yes. Sorry. It's all right. Coming up, shares of Tesla hitting the skids as regulators launch an investigation into the EV maker's autopilot system. So buckle up. Those details are next. Shares of Tesla down 4%. Plus, the traders aren't the only ones who've got their eyes on Big Pharma. The big smart money buys that have the stocks moving in the after hours... We'll give you that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Tesla shares tumbling as the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration announces a formal investigation into the EV maker's autopilot system. Phil Abo joins us with the very latest details on this pretty serious story. Hi, Phil. It is a serious story, Courtney. Now, it remains to be seen whether or not this ultimately leads to a recall for the uh, Tesla vehicles that are impacted here. But there's no doubt that this investigation catches a lot of attention because you're talking about an autopilot system that is highly controversial. A lot of people have said, look, this is bad news. People shouldn't be using it. Others have said it's overstated how, how dangerous this might be. Eleven crashes into emergency vehicles are being investigated. 17 injuries, one fatality, and it basically involves all the Tesla models, the XX, Y, and 3, between 2014 and 2021. The montage that we're going to show you here of different vehicle crashes are all 
first responder type incidents where a Tesla, an autopilot, hit a state trooper car or a fire vehicle uh, that was at a highway scene where they were responding to another accident or something else was going on and the Teslas involved in these crashes were in autopilot mode. By the way, 765,000 Tesla vehicles involved in this investigation. Elon Musk has defended the autopilot technology for years. Now, there are some who have said he has suggested that you can drive hands-free all the time with autopilot. He comes back and he has said, and I've heard him on conference calls say, look, we've always told people, and there is language in the Tesla vehicle owner's manual says you must pay attention when the vehicle is in autopilot mode. Nonetheless, there have been some changes that have been made. The Model 3 and the Model Y both have cameras inside that face the driver. Those cameras were turned on in some Model 3s and Model Ys earlier this year. And many have suggested that's the type of technology that needs to be in all Tesla vehicles across the board so that it can alert a driver when they fall asleep, when they get distracted, when they're not paying attention. That's the type of technology, Courtney, that you see in Super Cruise with the GM vehicles. And you see it with other automakers where they have the, the driver identification um, cameras so that they can tell if you get distracted, if you fall asleep, if you become drowsy, et cetera. And so is that what the investigation, Phil, is trying to determine exactly? What questions are they asking? Clearly crashes happen, so they're trying to decide if right. the driver was to determine at fault or the system? All of that. Was okay. the driver at fault? Was it the system? And then they may ultimately come back and say, hey, look, the system warned these drivers and the drivers didn't pay attention. And it was human error. Remember, there was a Tesla autopilot crash, really the first one, where there was a fatality down in Florida several years ago. And it looked like, oh, here's a case with autopilot. It didn't work right. The vehicle crashed into a semi. Ultimately, the NTSB conducted a lengthy investigation. And at the end of that investigation, they said that the technology worked the way it was supposed to work. So you can't sit there and say immediately, well, it's the technology. It's not working. You've got to see how these investigations play out. Got it. Okay. Thank you very much, Phil. You bet. This is a, is a serious story, of course, but it does have ramifications for the stock price, as we mentioned, down more than 4%. Tim, what do you make of what Phil has to say and what they're looking at and how this ultimately plays out for Tesla and the technology that it's trying uh, to really move forward? I think the people that are buying Tesla for the technology are unfazed by this. Okay. I, think, I think, you know, these are very serious concerns and, and these are dynamics that really in the past have been uh, questions around the company, but th- th- I don't think they've ever really moved the stock. The closest thing they really moved to the stock is when the stock... Uh, had you know bigger issues around their profitability but really around their balance sheet when i thought it didn't take a lot to push it around like they just announced some very good numbers and, and some of the trends that that made those good numbers and the profitability will probably get better i think the big issues are um, while they've reduced cost per vehicle the the revenue per per unit you know and the gross margin dynamics of this company do, do not warrant this this multiple and, and i just don't think it's it's it doesn't have the kind of growth of a tech multiple company and i've said that for three years and i've been wrong on the stock price um, but if you're asking me if today's news is going to be a game changer for Tesla in the short run, I say no. Nadine, what do you make of this? I mean, Tim says that, look, the people that love this technology aren't going to be phased by the investigation. But certainly some shareholders were today, as you can see, the move in the stock. Sure, but also tech was down because of a question on rates. So I think that it's probably a little bit muddled. And at the end of the day, it's not that much, I would say, in the, on the share price. But when I think of Tesla for us, um, you can look at a, maybe a 6.6% upside. So our range is about, I don't know, 682, I think, to 728. 
Um, but when I look at uh, other options, and I think that's what Tim's getting at, is you know we pitched Volkswagen a few weeks ago. I much prefer that. That has more of like a 6% upside, much more steady business than they're leasing out their technology and partnering with people. And, you know, they're more of an underdog from a brand perspective in this space. But when you look at uh, the technological advances, they've got it. So I'd rather just play elsewhere on this one than have to pay such a high multiple on Tesla. Fair enough. Thank you very much. We are going to move on. Coming up, Berkshire Hathaway making some big moves in big pharma. We'll break down the buys next. Plus, is there a new big short? Michael Burry betting big against Kathy Wood's ARK ETF. We've got more on that in just a few, so you don't want to go anywhere. Fast Money is back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway making some big moves in big pharma. Let's get to Leslie Picker with the details. Hi, Les. Hey, Court. That's right. Warren Buffett's firm paring back its exposure to healthcare during the second quarter. This, according to its 13F filings, Berkshire Hathaway selling about half of its stake in Merck, nearly 9 million shares, making the position worth about $700 million as of June 30th. The firm also shrunk its AbV and Bristol-Myers Squibb holdings, but they were still worth about $2.3 billion and $1.8 billion, respectively, at the end of the quarter. Berkshire closed a position in Biogen as well. The firm did maintain holdings in Johnson & Johnson and Teva, although those holdings, at least by Berkshire standards, were relatively small. Berkshire revealed earlier this month that it had been net sellers of about $1 billion in equities during the quarter after unloading nearly $4 billion during Q1. In that vein, Berkshire also sold about 20% of its stake in Marsh & McLennan, which had been a new stake last quarter, and the firm sold about 10% of GM during Q2. To be sure, there were a few additions. The firm boosted its stake in Kroger by 21% to hold more than $2 billion worth at the end of the quarter, and it added a bit more to Aon and RH. Note these positions are all as of June 30th. They may have changed in the six weeks or so since then. Court. Thanks very much, Leslie. I know it takes some time to go through all of those numbers. Guy, you flagged <laughs> some big moves in Big Cap Pharma before we got this move, actually. So what's your take here on what Leslie summed up for us with Berkshire's holdings? Well, it's interesting. I mean, listen, I respectfully, I think, you know, the Berkshire 13Fs are a lot different now than it might have been five or 10 years ago. I mean, they've obviously had some missteps, but you, you, you have to obviously take it into consideration. What I will say is, you know, we've been pretty steadfast on a number of names. I mean, Pfizer finally making all-time highs, uh, you know, getting through that 43 and a half, 44, huge double top. Eli Lilly continues to grind higher. I think that continues to be the best in breed. And I'll tell you that Biogen, you know, that moved down to 325. I think the worst in terms of headline risk, in my opinion, is over for that name. So those are the three places I would continue to be. Okay. Karen, what do you make of some of these moves? And Leslie pointed out, of course, these are always a bit dated because it's as of June 30th, so the positions could have changed, but certainly we pay attention to what Berkshire does. We do, because they don't change. For them, they're pretty steady investors. They don't change that much. But I agree, it used to have more impact than it does now. I I like the big cap pharma space. So Lilly, Abvi, Bristol-Myers, Merck, one other I'm not thinking of at the moment, Pfizer. Um, and I, I think it's sort of been a nice place to hide in the storm of whether we're in growth or whether we're in, you know, Delta variant or I don't know. I feel like there's still upside there. The valuations are cheap. The 
dividends are nice, which I don't buy anything for dividends, but um, I, I like the space. I want to continue to hold on to it. I think that um, one thing that we did see last year was people not going to the doctor, right? There was During the pandemic, they didn't go. Now, well, hopefully, they'll continue to go, and that's been a big push for these companies. I like them. Okay, got it. Well, coming up, Michael Burry of Big Short fame setting his sights on a new target. We'll take a trip to the options pits to break down the action. Fast Money is back into. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. Welcome back to Fast Money. Michael Burry of Big Short fame just revealed a huge bet against ARK Invest Kathy Wood and the company's flagship ARK Innovation Fund. Burry's Scion Asset Management bought more than 2,000 put contracts against the tech fund in the second quarter, representing more than $30 million worth of stock. ARK Innovation is down about 6% in 2021, even after bouncing nearly 30% off its May lows. And now other options traders are betting that the pain could continue. Continue. Mike Co joins us now with the action. Hi, Mike. This is an interesting one. Yeah, so we did see puts out trading calls by more than two to one on above average volume. It traded over 100,000 contracts overall. Most of the opening activity on the put side was in the September 104 strike puts. We saw over 7,500 of those trading for about $1.76. Now, a lot of that was the result of adjustments to earlier bearish activity in the August 27th weekly 115 puts. Obviously, the recent weakness was an opportunity for them to basically take some profits. Those have bumped up slightly. Overall, there are put contracts open on about 81.5 million shares of the ARK ETF right now. That's about 44% of the float. Mike, thank you very much. By the way, you can read more about Michael Burry's bet against the ARK Innovation ETF on our website. You've got to head to CNBC.com slash pro to sign up. Okay, let's trade this one. Tim, what do you make of this move? Well, it's, it, you know, it's an extraordinary move. Um, and if you, we, we know the composition of Kathy Wood's fund. You know, Kathy Wood has is, is created such a, a, an aura around her and, and she's been so successful um, it makes you a target. A lot of the names that are in that in that fund, including a 10 percent position, I think, at Tesla hmm. is the biggest position in the fund. Um, Michael, Michael, Burry, he also you know, has shorted uh, at least the same filing indicates that he increased a short in Tesla via puts to an equivalent of one point one million short Tesla shares, which is a massive position. So, hmm. again, this is a guy that's you know, going after high multiple stocks, maybe ones where he thinks that there's you know, structural flaws as well. Um, and, and again, we, we, you know, look, we talk about the multiples in some of these names. They're, they're, they're tough to justify. Um, having said that, uh, most of the stocks in that ARK ETF have had major, major runs. Hmm. Nadine, for her. Yeah, yeah. Nadine, what do you, what do you make of this, uh, this action for Michael Burry? Well, we can see it because what you have here is that the short-term trade line, the arc broke it. And when you're looking at that, then what it means is that if you consider, continue to see weakness, then it can shoot down pretty fast. So my guess mm-hmm. is that he's betting against Tesla, betting against high multiples, betting against tech, which maybe is also him thinking that rates are going to rise and that's mm-hmm. going to be 
uh, one of the beneficiaries is a down arc, but I mean, I'm not saying I know what he's thinking, but that could be it. When I look at it, our trading range is about 116 to 124.5, but I'd like to see it at 122 before you'd actually get excited. Because if, if it actually gets to 122, it means it's above its trade line and it could go higher. But if it stays lower and continues to break down, he's going to be right on his puts. Hmm. There is just a hair under 117. For more options action, be sure to tune in to the full show Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, it's already time for Final Trades. Final Trade Time, Nadine. Thermo Fisher at 5.34. Guy. Oracle. Tim. Courtney, great having you. Walmart into earnings. All right. And Karen, wrap it yes, up for us. Uh, Anthem. Even though up today, I still like it here. Good value. All right. Thank you all for watching. Fast Money, Mad Money starts right now.